Unlocking the book of Colossians for the last time. Study 16, a call tonight, pressing on. So let's read together Colossians chapter 4, our final verses from 7 through to 18. Entitled in my Bible here, Final Greetings. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him, that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write these greetings in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these scriptures. As we read them, Father, we can almost hear the heart of the Apostle beating. Might his words resonate in our hearts tonight, inspired by the Spirit, that in turn they might inspire us as they inspired the Colossians all those centuries ago. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Some people believe the Apostle Paul was something of a lone ranger, a kind of Clint Eastwood, a dirty Harry figure who bent the rules and was ostensibly unable to work alongside others. But actually, throughout Paul's letters, and indeed throughout the book of Acts, 
there are over a hundred different Christians mentioned with whom he shared some kind of ministerial partnership. So, in reality, I believe, Paul was not a lone ranger in ministry at all. He was a team player. In contrast, too many Christians today want to be solo flyers. I hear of people talking about one-man ministry, where someone is paid to do all the church's donkey work. Indeed, very recently and sadly, it was suggested to me that I am here to do what the church pays me to do. Well, perhaps. But with respect, I'm surely here to do what God calls me to do. And I believe God calls me towards team ministry. In a previous pastoral charge, well, my first pastoral charge, in point of fact, in Hisham near Morecambe, there was an occasion when a former church member who had left the church phoned me and said, Pastor, can I come and see you? I was intrigued. She'd left the church. She wanted to see me again. So I thought, oh, perhaps she's coming back again. That would be lovely. So she came across to the manse. She said, Pastor, I'm now going to a church that really meets my needs. I replied, trying to be gracious. Well, Pauline, that's absolutely wonderful for you. May God bless you there. And may you be a blessing to others there. But she wanted to make a point, you see. A point as to why she'd left our church in the first place. And so she went on, no, no, Pastor, I need to tell you why. She says, why I left here in the first place. You see, Pastor, she says, from Sunday to Sunday here in this church, you, you may introduce a hymn from time to time, you may pray a prayer from time to time, but, but for the most part, Pastor, from Sunday to Sunday, you just get up and preach. Others will pray, others will lead the worship, others will bring the children's talk, others will read the scriptures, you just get up and preach. But in my new church, the pastor does everything. The pastor prays. The pastor leads the worship. The pastor brings the children's address. The pastor reads the scriptures. The pastor preaches the sermon. It really meets my needs. I said, well, Pauline, may the Lord bless you there. My friends, where in the Bible do we read that we should try and make one person indispensable. No one. I'm reminded of a poem that uh, I was introduced to whilst I was reading English literature in Sixth Form College. A poem by Saxon White Kissinger. It's not a Christian poem, but it's a fascinating poem. Let me read it to you. You might be familiar with it. It's called The Indispensable Man. Sometime when you're feeling important... Sometime when your ego's in bloom. Sometime when you take it for granted you're the best qualified in the room. Sometime when you feel that your going would leave an unfillable hole. 
Just follow these simple instructions and see how they humble your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to the wrist. Pull it out. And the whole that's remaining is a measure of how much you will be missed. <laughs> you can splash all you wish when you enter. You may stare up the waters galore. But stop and you'll find that in no time it looks quite the same as before. The moral of this quaint example is to do just the best that you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there's no indispensable man <laughs> or woman for that matter. Friends, three final lessons from one who I believe, in spite of the opinions of some scholars, was a team player. He believed in team ministry. The first lesson is this. God can use all sorts. All sorts. Not licorice all sorts, though I like them. But he can use all sorts of people. All kinds of different people. And Paul alludes to some of them here in these final greetings of Colossians 4. Paul introduces us, for example, to Tychicus. Now, we don't know much about Tychicus, but if we trace references to him, we find that he was regularly on the move, here and there, travelling for the Apostle Paul's sake. He was, it seems, Paul's equivalent to email. He was, it seems, Paul's equivalent to a mobile phone. If Paul had a message to send, then he would send it through Tychicus. He describes Tychicus in verse 7b as a dear brother. How warm that is. He goes on, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. It seems this Tychicus was ready to be a key messenger for the Apostle Paul's sake. Paul goes on in verse 8 about him. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you might know about our circumstances. It's easy for us these days, isn't it? I want to communicate my circumstances to a brother or sister uh, anywhere in the world. I can do it electronically. The Apostle Paul didn't have that privilege, but he had a, a Tychicus whom he could send and who was willing to go to send news of what the Apostle Paul was all about, to communicate Paul's circumstances. And notice also that he may encourage your hearts. No doubt Tychicus would report to the Colossian believers something of the impact of the gospel through Paul's ministry. Now even though Paul was in chains, in prison for the sake of the gospel, people were being saved. Remember we were talking last time about Caesar's household. Saved through Paul's ministry there in prison. And how he, he says, Tychicus is going to come and encourage you. 
wonderful ministry. Tychicus's travelling companion, it seems, was Onesimus. Now Onesimus was a different kettle of fish altogether, wasn't he? He had recently become a Christian, it seems, and is described by Paul in verse 9 as our faithful and dear brother. Notice he doesn't refer to him as a minister. Paul, it seems, differentiates between the ministries. And Onesimus was one who was escorting, partnering, if you like, Tychicus, where Tychicus was the minister of the gospel. If you read Philemon, you will learn more about Onesimus. He was ostensibly a fugitive. He was a runaway slave. He'd run away from his master Philemon, and during that, that process of fleeing, he bumped into Paul somehow, and was wonderfully converted to Christ. In many ways, Onesimus is a brilliant little cameo of God incidences. Do you know what I mean? Where God works mysteriously behind the scenes to bring people to himself. Usually in spite of ourselves. He was a fugitive on the run. And he bumped into who? Of all the people in the world he could bump into, he bumped into the Apostle Paul. Hallelujah. Talk about the sovereign grace of God unto salvation. And this was Anisimus. Okay, not a minister of the gospel, it seems, but, but, but key to Paul's ministry. Because he travelled with Tychicus. He provided support. He provided succour. He provided, perhaps, just a sense of, of physical strength and, and, and support. Paul also speaks about Aristarchus. Verse 10, notice, my fellow prisoner. Why, why was Aristarchus a fellow prisoner? Well, perhaps he had been imprisoned with Paul for his faith. But also, another thing, perhaps. The Apostle Paul was a prisoner of some standing. He wasn't your average prisoner. He was, remember, uh, a citizen of Rome. Uh, and he was an educated man. He wasn't your average prisoner. And prisoners of the Apostle Paul's standing were, it seems, allowed slaves even in prison. And scholars suggest it's possible that Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner, was a fellow prisoner with Paul by choice. He had volunteered to be a servant of the Apostle in prison. Wow. Now that's what I call a servant heart. <laughs> he volunteered to, to be incarcerated with Paul that he might be his, his, his servant, his slave, if you like. And it's also suggested that Epaphras, of whom Paul speaks here, was also one of those fellow prisoners, volunteered to be a prisoner that he might minister Unto Paul's needs. Now, that type of fellowship, friends, goes a little beyond tea and biscuits after a service on a Sunday night, doesn't it? <laughs> We're also introduced by Paul in verse 11 to Jesus, who is called Justice. It's likely, of course, that, that this Jesus had his name changed subsequent to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus, of course, was a common name in the first 
century. And he, having embraced Christ as his saviour, changed his name to justice to save confusion. This justice is one of God's, I suppose, unsung heroes. There is nothing much that we can say about this man. It seems as though Paul is just mentioning him in passing. But I'd like to think that his inclusion is notable. Wouldn't you? Why would Paul include him in these final greetings if he meant nothing to him? He clearly meant something. Although Paul doesn't elaborate at all. Perhaps like so many of us, justice just simply sought to flourish in the inconspicuous. He sought to to minister in the daily round and the common tasks, so to speak. In contrast to justice, we have mention of the famous missionary doctor in verse 14, Dr. Luke. Luke was an educated man. And of course he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he, he was almost certainly the author of the Acts of the Apostles as well. And he was one of Paul's long-standing travelling companions. In fact, we, we can pretty well be sure when Luke joined Paul in his missionary journeys, because Luke himself, in Acts chapter 16 verse 10, as he was writing, he speaks of the plural we, referring to Paul, when he was in Troas. So perhaps Luke joined Paul at Troas, and from that time on became one of his esteemed uh, travelling companions. Interestingly, verse 10, there's also Mark mentioned. Mark, I ask you, Mark. Mark, Paul says, the son of Barnabas. Now we know, of course, that uh, behind this name is quite, uh, there's quite a story. For Mark was the, the one who, who failed, who failed at his first attempt at missionary service. And remember, because of his failure, he, he managed to cause a rift between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Yet here, here Mark is on the scene again. And, and Paul is speaking of him. A reminder, I suppose, that since failure need never be final with God, it doesn't need to be final with you and I either. Friends, do we see the picture that's being painted for us here? Paul had the writers of two of the Gospels and the book of Acts in prison with him. And between the three of them, they produced over half the books of the New Testament. That's fascinating, isn't it? Prisoners, I ask you, prisoners. And yet they produced over half of our New Testament. Friends, we never know what might become of those with whom we perhaps sit in class next to, or, or sit next to in the office, or, or maybe just sit next to on the bus. We never know what might happen to, to an innocent conversation as we endeavour to communicate the love of Christ. Do we? I, I can't wait to get to heaven in a way, because, because I, I long to know what, what are the fruits of my labour. Gosh, throughout my ministry I must have preached thousands of times. 
And oft times without any effect, it seems. But God has promised me, hasn't he? My child, my word will not return unto you. Me void. And from my perspective, it seems that nothing's happened. People come, they sit, they listen, they go again. I think, oh, nothing's happened, Lord. But God's promising my child, you wait till you get to heaven. You will see there just what God did with your faithfulness. I often wonder where some of those who have sat under my ministry over the years have ended up. And every now and again, perhaps through through the wonders of social media, I delightfully discover them making a difference for the kingdom of God at home and abroad. And it thrills my soul. Sam, a prodigy of mine when I was the youth leader in Trinity Church, Crane Hill, now pastoring an Elim church just down the road in Caffili. How wonderful. Kate, a young girl from Morecambe, that uh, came to me one Monday evening. It was an awful night. I never forget that. She's just poured out her heart to me about God calling her into the ministry. It's my joy to send her off to, to Bible college. I often wondered uh, how, how she got on with the Lord. And she sent me a Facebook friend request. <laughs> She's now serving as an evangelist with a faith mission in Canada. Hallelujah. Isn't that, isn't that a blessing? Sandra, a mother of two from Lancaster. She's now a well-respected lay preacher in the Free Methodist Church. Who would have thought it? Andrew, my goodness, Andrew. He was a rebellious adolescent from my church in Tricunan in Aberdeen. Who would have thought anything would good come of Andrew? He's now a, a serving deacon of the same church. And an up-and-coming lay preacher, no question. Andrew Jarvis. All my friends to the glory of God as we named just a few. Who's to say what God can do through your ministry and mine when we endeavour to be faithful? God can use all sorts. All sorts. The Apostle Paul just names a few names and there's a mixed bag amongst them, isn't there? But how wonderful, wonderful things God did through these through these people. We should never underestimate God's power to take ordinary people and make them effective for him. By grace, my friends, that includes unlikely candidates like you and like me. Hallelujah. My second point is this. God needs prayer warriors. We need to serve God fervently passionately and prayerfully. I know what you're thinking. Here the pastor goes again on his soapbox of prayer. Friends, not my soapbox, but God's. God's soapbox. Note how Paul describes this man called Epaphras. Verses 12 through 13. He's one of them, he says. We understand he must have been from Colossae or from a surrounding area. One of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus Christ, he, listen, he's always wrestling in prayer for you. That makes me a little sceptical. How many Christians do you know of whom it could be said 
They are always wrestling in prayer. But Paul wasn't prone to exaggeration. He was writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. We have to conclude, if Paul describes Epaphras as one always wrestling in prayer for the saints, that he was. He says that you, the saints, might stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. Oh, I, I hope there is somebody on this planet who is wrestling in prayer for me as Epaphras was for the Colossians. Don't you? Don't you? Because I want to stand firm in the will of God. I want to be spiritually mature. I want to be fully assured. Paul says, I vouch for him. That he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Friends, every Christian is called to pray. Now, we might not be of the caliber of Epaphras, who's praying all the time for the saints, but we're called to pray. But some of us are called to pray in the manner of Epaphras. It's a, it's a kind of higher order of prayer that, that, that I would prefer to call intercession. There's prayer. And there's prayer. <laughs> there's prayer and there's intercessionary prayer. I believe Epaphras was an, was an intercessory prayer. A ministry of prayer. During my time overseeing the Missionary Society OMS International here in the UK, on one of my many trips to Northern Ireland, I arranged to visit a retired missionary couple. At the time, known to me as only names on a piece of paper. I'd never met them before. Walter and Clara Brentner, who had uh, ministered for many years in India. I was warned before my visit, however, make sure you have plenty of time before you go. Well, I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I soon found out. <laughs> I knocked on the door of the little flat and was greeted at the door by a very elderly, very frail Mrs. Brentnor. Well, she beckoned me in and, and led me through to the bedroom where her dear husband Walter lay. Walter Brentnell was a little bag of bones, bless him, and he was bed-bound. And he greeted me very simply. He says, nice to meet you, brother. I haven't got much time, he says, so let's pray. That's all he said to me. I thought, there's a strange statement for, for, for one who's bed-bound. Haven't got much time. But he prayed. Oh, he prayed. And I sat there on his bed for 60 minutes in the presence of God as he interceded for one saint after the other saint after the other saint after the other. Ah, what a blessing. And after about, and I don't, I don't exaggerate, 50, 60 saints I glanced up, I thought, this old man must have a, have a prayer list in front of him. He must have. Name after name after name after name. No prayer list. 
No notepad. He was interceding for the saints. And that was my visit. Boy, I left humble and blessed. So God, there are people like Epaphras. He might be a bag of bones. He might be an old man. But boy, could he pray. He didn't have time, he didn't have time to waste on the executive director of Orbez International. <laughs> Small talk, what was not part of his vocabulary. Brother, he says, I haven't got much time. Let's pray. When I left, I'm sure he was still praying. Isn't it, isn't it wonderfully reassuring to know that there are men and women of God like that. And I believe the most powerfully effective Christians within the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, you say, they're not preaching. But they're praying for the preachers. They're not evangelizing. But they're praying for the evangelists. They're not counseling. But they're praying for the counselors. My friends, our church needs people like this. People with a ministry of intercession. But notice, mysteriously, Epaphras wasn't just prayerful. He was practical. Paul says, I vouch for him. That he is, he is working hard for you. Here, friends, is a man of prayer and a man of action. Now, I put it to you. This is a, a, a rare combination. Wouldn't you say? Some pray and don't act. Maybe they can't act. Some act and don't pray. But here was a man of God who was a man of prayer. And a man of action, both hand. For an example of this, we don't have the time to look at it, but for an example of this rare combination, you check out Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6. Nehemiah, the Old Testament version of Epaphras. Paul then introduces us to another faithful servant of the gospel, Nympha, and the church in her house, as the NIV translates it here. Brethren, other manuscripts have the church in his house. Or even the church in the house. We're not entirely certain of the gender. But fundamentally it doesn't matter. <laughs> Whilst we split hers about the gender of ministry, the ancient church were more concerned with the communication of Christ. <laughs> Whether it be he or she or both and, they are preoccupied with the communication of the gospel through their little house churches. Now I realise the expression house church is a loaded phrase today. The fact is, friends, the early church didn't bother themselves too much about church buildings. The main thing was to communicate the gospel and women as well as men were involved equally. In that task. How you say, was that possible? Far more patriarchal a community and society they were then as perhaps we are today. Entirely possible. Because my friends, Christ cuts across gender barriers. It is us today that put the gender barriers back. Not Christ. As a group they were fervent in God's service. 
eager to get the message out there. You will have heard about the phenomenal growth of the church in China these last 50 years. A growth unprecedented, friends, unprecedented in the history of the Christian church. Here's something interesting. Much of that evangelism has taken place through the unofficial house church. And many of the evangelists who have been most used and most courageous in their ministry have been women. Here in the UK, too many churches are consumed by trivial issues, I guess. We need a single-minded passion for God to get the gospel out. Men and women, get the gospel out. Boys and girls in Christ, let's get the gospel out. Some of the greatest evangelists I've known have been children. Children. Why? Because they're so uninhibited. You see, the older we get, the more inhibited we become. The more conscious we become of of who we are and how people perceive us. Kids couldn't care two hoots. I remember my my youngest daughter, Ruth, accepted the Lord Jesus when she was four years of age. Impossible, you say. Mm -hmm. She knew what she was doing when very simply she asked Jesus to be her special friend. I tell you. And when she was six years of age... We were in our, her grandparents' house, Deb's mum and dad's house, both non-Christians. <laughs> and, and innocently, she turned around to her grandfather and says, Granddad, why don't you go to church? Could cut the atmosphere with a knife. Deb was trying to say to her, shh, don't, don't talk about it. And so she shut up. And after a little while, she said, Granddad, we learned this song in Sunday school about loving Jesus. Do you love Jesus? She said, Now, I, I couldn't say that to my, to my father-in-law. I was inhibited. Ah, with the innocence of a six-year-old child. And I tell you something. He sat there convicted. Do you love Jesus, grandfather? We underestimate what God can do through kids and through children. And through young people. Oh, you see, children should be seen and not heard. We push them to one side. Oh, we spiritualize it. And we say, oh, well, children, they're the church for tomorrow. Poppycock. That's nonsense. I don't like that at all. Why are children the church of tomorrow? The church of today. Church of today. It's equally important to the church of Jesus Christ as you and I as mature brethren. And often more effective. God needs prayer warriors. Thirdly and finally, quickly, gosh, time's gone. God demands that we finish well. There's an old expression, few great men finish well. Paul speaks here of Demas, verse 14. It is in all probability the very same Demas that Paul refers to in the very last letter he ever wrote to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.10 he speaks of Demas who in love with this present world has forsaken me. One minute he's referring to Demas 
with a sense of affection to the Colossian Christians. Perhaps 15, 20 years on, he refers to the same Demas as the one who for love with this present world has forsaken me. Demas, I believe, is a representative of the guy who did not press on. The guy who lost his way. The guy who did not finish well, if he, didn't, if he finished at all, for the sake of the kingdom. What a contrast to Archippus. Paul writes, to, and in verse 17 he says, Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Oh, my friends, dear friends, can I ask you, when you and I, when we stand before the throne of God, will we stand there as those who, like Archippus, have completed the work that God gave us to do. God demands that we finish well. And the evil one wages a war of attrition against the children of God. You don't need me to tell you that. He does so knowing that if he can neutralize the impact of a Christian's life in the final stages of their lives, then it calls into question all that has gone before. It's important we finish well. When Eric Little was asked what the secret of his success was when running the 400 meters. He replied, the secret of my sex success in running the 400 meters is that I run the first 200 as hard as I can. And then for the second 200, with God's help, I run harder. <laughs> now, if you've run 400 meters properly, you will know how difficult that is. You will know. I run it. I was a 100, 200 meter sprinter, really. But occasionally, they threw me into the 400 meters. You come round that last bend, 250, 300, having run as hard as you can, and you're in agony. And the lactic acid hits the back of your legs and your calves. You feel like lead in your shoes. And you're, you're, you're trying to pour as much air into your lungs as you possibly can just to keep going. Little says, I run the last 200 harder. My friends, it's so important that we finish well. That we complete the task that God has given us to do. Ah, you say, but pastor, I'm getting old now. Well, you tell Walter Brenton all that. A bag of bones, bed bound. Arguably one of the most effective Christians I've ever, ever come across. We must finish well.
We must finish well. The Edinburgh Evening News reporting about Eric Little's Olympic triumph on the 11th of July 1924 wrote, It was the last 50 metres that meant the making or the breaking of Eric Little. All my friends, it will be the last 50 metres that will make the making or the breaking of Doug Atherton. And therefore, logically, as I do not know when my home call will come, it is imperative that I'm running as hard as I can now. Because I might be called home tonight. See what I'm saying? Paul says, Tell Archippus, complete the work that you have received in the Lord. Brethren, anyone can start a marathon, but the aim isn't to start. It is to finish. The marathon of faith requires not only starters but stickers. And friends, we can get some great inspiration for our spiritual race when we read chapters like Hebrews chapter 12. Can we not? David Livingstone, that great missionary explorer, one of my spiritual heroes, he prayed, Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any tie, but the tie that binds me to thyself. Few great men finish well. My friends, God is saying to us, brother, my, my sons, my daughters in Jesus, finish the work that God has given you to do. And that work is the salvation of souls. And whether we're at the front line as preachers and as evangelists and as, as one-to-one personal workers, whether we're in, at the front line perhaps working with children in our Sunday school or, 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 or our youth groups, or, or whether we're those who undergird all of that as an intercessor, it is imperative we finish the work God gave us to do. And the ultimate example, of course, isn't Archippus, though, though sure he was a great man, our ultimate example is Jesus. Jesus, who, did, who gave testimony, didn't he? In his high priestly prayer. I have finished the work you have given me to do. Father, we thank you for these scriptures and our <coughs> prolonged <laughs> sojourn in the book of Colossians. We thank you for the insights. We thank you, Father, for uh, the inspirations. We thank you for the rebukes. 
the exhortations of the Apostle, of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you use all sorts of people, even us. Hallelujah. We thank you've called us, many of us to prayer, all of us to prayer, many of us to intercession, all of us to finish the work that you've given us to do. Oh, Father, many of us have worked faithfully in this church for years. But we want to see it through. See it through to such an extent that this place is heaving. Heaving with people. Queuing to get in to worship. Why not, Lord? Why not? Will you not reward your faithful here with that wonderful sight? Before you call us home. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.